So welcome everybody to this uh, week's edition of Thinking Caps. We're very pleased to have Jeremy Schwartz with us today. Jeremy was previously the CEO of Body Shop, the former CEO of Pandora, uh, managing director of L'Oreal. Uh, he held senior marketing positions at Coca-Cola and Sainbury's, where he brought to market imperfect vegetables that would have been previously thrown away. And at Coke, invented Coke Zero. Coke yes. Zero. <laughs> Cheers. So, welcome, Jeremy. Hi, nice to see you. And as you can see, I'm actually outside in the sunshine because uh, obviously with everything that's happened with lockdown, offices have changed and uh, we thought we'd uh, take it from the outside. You, yeah, you need your vitamin D today. You definitely got to get your vitamin D. I do. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's great to have you on. We've had, uh, we've had a lot of, 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 of CXOs of various different uh, major corporations on the show. Uh, we haven't had that many CEOs. I think this is the third CEO we've uh, we've had on the on the call. So always a really interesting perspective. Get the perspective of the CEOs, and particularly uh, with yourself being a CEO that has had significant marketing experience. Uh, you know, the, I think you were saying there's only only ten percent of CEOs have had significant marketing experience. So great to have you uh, on the show. And I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off with a question that probably only you will understand, but hopefully your answer will, uh, will, will make it, will illuminate everybody else on, who's listening. So tell me why you hate averages. Um, well, I hate averages because um, they are brought to me a lot in business and they are brought as either the solution or a problem. And what I've discovered and over the years of actually doing marketing, but also business is they mislead the truth as to what's happening. And I'm going to bring then the marketing aspect. And I'm going to tell you a story actually about Coca-Cola. So, you know, many years ago when I was working there, we were trying to work out how to grow and discovered that there are consumers in uh, Mexico, in America, and in Iceland of all places that drink four cans of Coke a day, a significant amount of the, of the population. And once we suddenly realize that people drink four cans a day, which is about 1.2 liters, and if you think that you're only meant to drink two liters of water, it shows that there's still capacity, frankly, to get people to drink more Coke than four cans a day because they get the water through the Coke and, they, and that's good. It made us say, well, hang on a minute, rather than just marketing Coke as a product, we should market to those people who only drink two cans a day to get them to four cans a day. And actually, when you think of a marketing problem like that, which is, okay, so when is it somebody during the day isn't drinking Coke that they could? They're doing it twice, but they're not doing it four times. You start to say things like, right, we need to associate Coke with lunchtime, for example, or the afternoon break. And that makes you far more specific, far more actionable than just a generic statement that Coke makes things nice. So the averages in those countries, you know, is about... Uh, uh, about a can a day on average. But the interesting thing is the percentage of people who drink four cans a day and what you can do with that information. And that's why I hate averages. Wow. That, I, I, I mean, it's great. It's the numbers, the digging into the data, right? It's the granularity of the data that actually shows you where the opportunity is. And that's, that's, thinking, that's thinking with data. Yeah, and we've we've had it's interesting. We've had a lot of uh, folks come on to the to the show and actually talk about exactly that. You know, if you're able to surface the true data, uh, you can understand how people are engaging with you in the context of today. 
you can plan for opportunities of tomorrow. And, and it all comes down to how agile your business is at actually finding data and acting on it. So it's a great, a great example. It's a, there is a tool that I will share which makes that, uh, that challenge or that opportunity very simple as a first cut to it. Because you know, one of the challenges we all have now is we have so much data that uh, you know, there are many organizations who don't even know how to manage it or find obviously what we call insight out of data. You know, data is one thing, it's insight. And the simple thing is just simply to break down whatever it is, whether it's the sales of shops, it's the amount people drink, it's the numbers of clothes people wear a day, and say, what is the least number that people do and what is the maximum we can possibly find and break down in between that. And I've um, another story, I'll give you another story quickly. And Pandora, where I was, the, uh, I was told with great certainty that the numbers of charms that women were buying and wearing on a bracelet was declining over the last three years. And that was explaining the decline of the business. And I didn't want to believe it. And I didn't believe it. And I didn't believe it because they simply took two numbers, which was the number of charms being sold and the number of bracelets, divided one by the other and said, that's a conclusion. Well, for me, those were two completely independent facts that happened to be divided by each other. But in fact, when we pulled it all apart, we found that 15% of women actually bought 20 charms a year and another 50% only bought one. And actually what was happening is the people who bought 20, nobody was talking to them. We weren't rewarding them. We weren't thanking them. And so they were just dropping off a little bit. But that was a completely different diagnosis than saying people were buying from five to three, which was the average story and, and a dangerous one. Wow. Like, how do you how do you get that kind of data? Was that an easy data to get to? Was it was it just ignored or was that data actually coming into your department or, or you know, how do you, how do you deal with getting that level of data? So I think there are two, uh, the two answers to the question. The first one is that those businesses that have some sort of loyalty card or have some sort of access to, you know, individual customer data from e-com, for example, will have access to it. Um, actually, Pandora didn't have that data. They didn't have a loyalty card, but we had got a brand tracker in which people were asked to declare what they did. The key thing is, did anybody look at it? And, you know, uh, of course, there are multiple brilliant companies out there where this is obvious what I'm saying. But I come across so many situations where it isn't that I feel quite comfortable to say, you know, I hate averages and you've got to drill down and break it down if you really want to find the truth about problems. Wow. The truth in the data. It's right there. If you collect it and loyalty, lo we've, all, we've been saying it here. A loyalty program is not just points and rewards. It can inform your business to such an un unbelievable degree, especially when you're bringing in zero party data and you under identify the, the you know, 20 unit buyers and the one unit buyer, it's great. Well, let's just pick on that point because of course, um, you know, you, we all have these loyalty programs and, and it is to drive behavior, but you know, I might personally, and I'm sure other smart people will be saying the same, actually it's about data stupid. That's why we've got the loyalty program. It's only because it's the only way to get the granular data that we do it really. We hope, and of course, we're very pleased about the behavioral changes. But I think people, you know, it's important as a CEO, the number of reasons I want to do it is to get all that data to make better decisions. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. And that's a great, great perspective. So I've got one other question for you. What is worth $10 trillion? Ooh. Well, um, it's a big number, of course. <laughs> And something that uh, is going to be worth around $10 trillion is the value of the top five companies in America, which also interestingly happened to look exactly like the top five companies in China, which is just worth noting. And of course, those are Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, 
and Google. And the reason that I think it's important to, uh, to reflect on that, it's something we all know, but my challenge to a lot of employees and companies is, well, if that's a fact, how well are you studying what they do that makes them so good? And this is where I'd like to bring in why this crisis that we're going through is actually probably one of the greatest gifts, unless, of course, you've died or been ill, and, of course, I need to make sure. that a different point, that could be given to young and all managers because I've learned more about how to lead through the nine crises I've been through over the last 30 years than probably any other way. And it completely overlaps why those companies are the most valuable. And I will explain. Because through the crisis that I started in 1997, when actually we had the Kosovo War and America banned the sale of Coca-Cola in Kosovo, where we were selling, um, you know, I learned about the concept called agile management. Well, it didn't exist then, actually. I created something for myself, which was about acting with speed, removing barriers, working as teams cross-functionally without any worries about what people's job titles were. And of course, what I discovered is that the tech companies had crafted this sort of thinking into something called agile management, which means they go at unbelievable speed to deliver solutions. In fact, so fast I speak to some companies who, um, digital companies, they have to retrain their staff every Friday just to keep up with Google and Facebook. Why it's interesting, I think, in this context of this conversation is what I see in digital transformation is a problem, uh, and in companies, is the sometimes all-out war between functions or at least the, uh, the non-collaborative attitude between, for example, the digital team, perhaps the IT team, perhaps the marketing team, as people fight for territory and, and owning things. And what agile management and crisis management brings is a refocus on just getting the job done independent of people's functions, who they report to, how they're trying to prove something, because you've got no choice. And what I would hope is that for the companies and people listening here, they would reflect on why those companies are so successful and ask themselves personally, am I operating in an agile way? Could I collaborate faster? And I'll give you an example, if that's interesting. Uh, at the body shop, we had an R&D team in one town and a marketing team in the other. And when I spoke to each, when I visited them, they'd always complain about the other team. So marketing said R&D never send them good products and R&D said marketing never gave them good briefs. And I got sick of this. So I thought, well, hang on a minute. I'm going to buy five big tables. I'm going to move R&D to sit on the same table as the marketing people by category so that no more can they complain about each other because all they've got to do is turn their heads to the next person beside them who's the R&D and say, can I have the product? And the R&D has just said, can I have the brief? And suddenly the problems are removed. But of course, you can imagine to get two functions that like to report into their own directors and sit in different rooms, this was quite you know, challenging, but was very successful at getting the job done as opposed to reporting to nice heads of departments. That's great advice. And we recently had Scott McNeely in as this crisis was unfolding. And Scott, obviously the founder of, of Sun Microsystems, went through the dot-com bubble. And we talked about crisis management then, you know, uh, one of the largest companies in the world and, and how he went through it. But that's, a, that's also great advice, um, crisis management. I'm going to build on that because actually I used him as a reference to a real conundrum I'm trying to wrestle down. It's a comment he made which is that he sends out apparently a weekly email to all staff in the company. And he decided to find out how many people actually read it and discovered it was only 100. His direct reports and the direct reports of the direct reports, everybody else ignored the letter from the CEO. 
And where I think this tells us is that, you know, people are not actually that interested in what the CEOs of many companies are saying because they talk in high fluting ways and it quite often just doesn't affect the individual life of an individual sitting at a desk working. So one of the things that I've reflected on on this is that when we talk about digital transformation or change or crisis and we ask people to do things differently, we've got to make it right down down to what we want an individual to personally do differently. Otherwise, if we just say we want you to act more agilely or change or do something different, it's like, okay, well, yeah, I'll just carry on with my job because frankly, I don't quite know what they really want. So there's a, an important, I think, management leadership learning that we have to all bring to make people go on the journey of change. Um, yeah. I like that. Digital transformation from the ground up. Give them their marching orders. Yes, but and make it very, very precise is what you want people to do differently, you know, as opposed to just big brushes and big statements, you know, which, of course, as a CEO, we love to give because we want to be generous or, or generic or big and, and, and exciting. But that's not enough when you're working, you know, in a computer on a desk somewhere in the business. Jeremy, you, 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 I know you talk about myth busting uh, quite often. So tell us, tell us about myth busters and, and what it means to you. Yeah, so I think, you know, what every company now has to do, whether it is the Microsoft or whether it is some legacy company like Coke or if it's a digital company, nobody can dare stand still. Because if you stand still or even go into Slayer's place, you will be killed by somebody else. It's happening either because the consumer is changing faster than ever before. They like new, but they get bored very quickly, as Jeff Bezos quotes. Um, or there are competition that are just arriving. Now, what I've seen, in, and again, we can learn this from the crisis, is that if you or I had had a podcast and we'd said six months ago, you know, we're going to close down all of the cars. We're going to ban people from leaving their homes. We're going to stop all aeroplanes. We would have been told we are stupid and clearly, you know, need to have our heads checked. But the impossible has happened. And in business, much of the time, it's trying to make something that perhaps is the impossible happen, or at least something pretty close to that, you know, I think, um, and a good story is that when Elon Musk went to see NASA to tell them he had this idea of getting two rockets to re-land, they laughed at him because they said it's not possible, it's impossible. And what's lovely about Elon is, um, you see I use his first name, uh, that he actually made it occur. But what I see in business is that companies have myths within the organization, things you can do or you can't do. They have sort of unspoken walls of behavior of, well, you better not do that, or the boss doesn't like this. And I noticed as a CEO, I once got an email where it was an email trail. And in that email, I was being quoted as having said something can't be done. And it never came out of my mouth ever. It was like a Chinese whisper. And so one of the things I want employees to do is to challenge the myths. And I'm gonna give you an example. So um, at Pandora, uh, because we were doing a big transformation, the chief marketing officer wanted to change the whole brand image, the logo and everything. And I was told as the CEO to don't, you know, to not go to that place because it would not be allowed. The lawyers would not allow us to change the brand logo. And so I went to the lawyers and said, you know, what is this? I've been told on pain of death that you can't change the logo. And they said, well, because we have a trademark restriction. Well, of course, the question is not that there was a trademark restriction. The question is, how do you get around it? 
And of course, we found a way around it. And therefore, this apparent uh, subject that could not be touched disappeared. And I have many examples of that where you have to challenge what people say is possible and not possible because it probably isn't the case, but everybody just goes along with it. Yeah, we've talked a lot about digital transformation, right? I mean, we've had several guests that have effectuated change, big change in their companies, and you got to break those barriers. You got to break those walls down. You got to look on the other side. Uh, and it all comes, you know, I call the myths a little bit is some of them are very fixed, like organizations and people and so on, but some of them are just what's discussed or even not discussed within an organization. And it's, it's picking on those things that I'm pointing to here. Yeah, excellent. Well, one other thing we wanted to ask you was um, there's a lot of uh, noise around uh, Facebook and the social media uh, ad boycott. I uh, just wanted to get your your perspectives as uh, you know as a, a tenured CEO about uh, about what's going on in the in the press today about that. Well, I guess I will start with a philosophical statement first of all. Um, I haven't explained to you, but I'm a, a big uh, environmentalist and uh, somebody who believes that we've got to take far greater action to reduce global pollution, as I call it, not global warming, but global pollution. And uh, I fundamentally believe that governments will not stop the problem. It's companies that will, because their governments are too scared. They're too short-termist. They're not bold enough, even though perhaps after COVID, they demonstrated themselves they can be. My belief is that they still lack the guts and that in the end, it will be companies who will, like Tesla and others, will invent the solutions. So potentially what we can see with Facebook is that there is a, a complicated line we can see worldwide now about both freedom of speech, but also the right to, uh, or, or the, uh, the closing down on the right to free speech. And, you know, in the end, we need governments to step into this debate because it's either going to really curtail democracy or it's going to have, you know, certain groups being, uh, in, you know, totally incorrectly discriminated against. But they haven't acted. They've allowed these things to progress too long, it would feel, even though I think Facebook have claimed to have made changes. So perhaps it's time that companies stood up and uh, voted with their money. I think the only thing to make sure is that they're not doing it just out of like a greenwashing thing. You know, it's not being done just to follow the crowd and that there's real sincerity and real uh, transparency, i.e. that their organizations are also following a non-discriminatory and a fair practice environment. And, you know, unfortunately, we've seen some examples that some of the boards of the companies lack the diversity that some of the uh, companies are themselves trying to demonstrate that they are supporting. So, so you I know, think it's the right thing to do, but it's got to be done with integrity, I guess I would summarize. So let's put your CEO hat on and your, your marketing hat back on. And let's say you're, you're Mark Pritchard at PNG or you're somebody with, you know, with sizable marketing spend. And through this boycott, you don't see any disruption to your bottom line. Does that change fundamentally where social media, you know, sits in your marketing plan? And, you know, today, the day we're recording this, the drum had, a, had, a, uh, had an article published where they're saying, hey, if, if the boycott lasts, where will all the money go? And I think there's a bigger question of, is social media the way that marketers are using it, the lack of creative, you know, et cetera, it just got kind of blasé. If it doesn't affect your bottom line and your boycott, what do you do? Do you go back to social media? Do you have any, do you have any thoughts there about the long-term, long tail? 
this is a very big subject for me, which is that there is something not working in marketing if we look at the lack of growth of the top, let's call them legacy. Well, the top 50 global brands are, decline, are growing at only 0.2% since 2017. And they were growing, I think it was at 3% for the 10 years prior to that. So something doesn't seem to be working to the level it should. And, you know, we can talk about disruptors, we can talk about many things. But for me, one fundamental question is, is communication working? Is social media uh, able to bring brand stories to the consumer in the way that compels them to buy that instead of a disruptor that's come along. And actually, I've spent a lot of time going to the top advertising groups, going to the top research companies saying, can you demonstrate to me sufficiently that an investment in social media is getting the brand story over as opposed to very powerful sound bites in um, which one can have as a product image, etc.? And I've actually struggled for anybody to really give me the compelling answer. Now, I've done a lot of com uh, econometric modeling of advertising in every job. I've brought that in. We know that search, for example, is highly effective at giving a return on investment. But what it doesn't do, even search, is tell you a brand story. It directs you to a website. It, it makes you click and go and look, which is great. But... Um, Facebook has frustrated me in the past that I've always struggled to get the data. Now, there is something interesting, which is because I'm not only a CEO, but one that's looking for my next job, I've decided to teach myself basic, full Facebook advertising and uh, I'm uh, investing in campaigns for a podcast I have. And I'm actually seeing some quite interesting results. So um, I'm, I'm learning at the granular level what is what does drive those results and what doesn't. Uh, but I must just tell you, I'm slightly amused that my advertising, because I've actually created a little 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and 30 second ads, all have been banned by Facebook because they contravene their social and political views. Now, I'm talking about something that just simply says, let's stop, you know, the uh, greenhouse gases. And apparently I'm, I need to be banned, which uh, must amuse the Russians, I guess, because they're not getting banned. But anyway... Well, if you're looking for your next job and you figure out podcast uh, promotion, you know, maybe we could hire you here at Thinking Cats. <laughs> Run some ads on the side for us. Well, look, this has been really enlightening. Uh, I, I love it. I love it. Richard. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Really appreciate your time uh, coming on. Uh, uh, love to uh, to you know let, tell people about the podcast, where they can, uh, yeah. what's it called, where, where they can get involved. So the podcast is called Saving Tomorrow's Planet and can be found on Apple, Spotify, and all other good platforms. It's, uh, the idea is to speak to pioneering people who are taking action to reduce climate pollution. So I don't want to speak to people who tell me what's the problem or what could be done. I'm trying to find people who are actually doing stuff. Because unfortunately, I've learned through a few jobs that there's a lot of people in companies, both young and old, who actually are unwilling to take action within a company to reduce their pollution effects. And that worries me a lot, because if we haven't got young people wanting to do that, if we haven't got bravery in this subject, we're not gonna see a change. So I wanna give a platform to brave people who are making and taking actions. Yeah, that, that's great. And you'll be happy to know that Richard came in on a battery-operated machine. I We rode bikes. Um, we, we have all of our lights off in the office, except for in the room we're in. So we're, we're hoping we're contributing to that greater good. I'm sure you are. All right, Jeremy. Well, again, thank you very much. We'll talk to you in the near future. We appreciate everything you've been doing with the brand, and we wish you the best of luck in your, your search for your next uh, endeavor.
Good, thank you. Well, I've really enjoyed it and uh, it would be a pleasure to come and talk about some other subjects if that's of interest. Love great. to. Yeah, great. Thank you. All right. Enjoy your, your nice day in the vitamin D. We got to go get some ourselves. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> See you soon. Bye.